On this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, we discuss the latest news, including an update to the fraudulent Florida nursing diploma situation, discuss texting in the ASC, review some recent survey experiences, and in our focus segment, discuss informed consents. Welcome to the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, the longest-running podcast specifically focused on the freestanding ambulatory surgery industry. We would like to thank our sponsor, Surgical Information Systems, providing cutting-edge information solutions for surgery providers, Trivalence. Trivalence offers a comprehensive next-generation ASC solution that optimizes payment and supply chain performance, enabling actionable data insights. MedServe, which is the only digital narcotic cabinet specifically designed and priced for surgery centers, helping standardize processes and compliance, eliminate paper logs, and prevent drug diversion. And Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies, the nation's leading regulatory and accreditation compliance resource for ambulatory surgery centers. For more information about our sponsors, visit our website at ASCPodcast.com. Welcome to episode 213 of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey for February 18th, 2024, recording from our studios in Spencerport, New York. This is Sue Cronkite, co-host of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey and Operations Manager for Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. We would like to remind our listeners that the ASC regulatory environment is a rapidly evolving landscape, and the material presented in this episode is based on the most current information available as of the date of recording. As such, it is important to recognize that this information may be subject to change, and we advise all ASCs to stay up to date with the latest regulations and guidelines issued by their relevant regulatory bodies. And joining me today is John Gailey, the owner of Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies and one of the most respected experts in the ambulatory surgery industry. With over 30 years of experience, Mr. Gailey has authored over 10 books on the ASC industry and is a sought-after speaker on regulatory accreditation and finance issues. So, uh, Sue, you're feeling under the weather. This is our uh, third take, I think, of... um, (laughs) (laughs) um, So uh, so your voice sounds a little bit different, so Mm -hmm. we're going to be... We'll try to get this done quickly so that you can uh, (laughs) go back to... uh, Probably go back to bed. Uh, Yesterday was um, the third anniversary of our patron Mm -hmm. program weekly drop-in session. We had a a lot of fun. It's it's funny, one of the attendees at the weekly drop-in session said... How long have we been doing this? So I, I was able to look yeah. up the numbers and and uh, yeah, he was thinking it was three years and and we it, it was exactly just, it three snuck years. Snuck up on us, I yeah. Guess. So, so thank you, uh, Shane. If you're not familiar with the patron program, it's a uh, program that's available on asc-central.com that allows you to uh, talk on a weekly basis with uh, the hosts of this podcast as well as uh, some other surveyors and, and anybody else, including a lot of the other patron members who, who like to pop in on Saturday mornings. So it's Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. Uh, Eastern Standard Time. Uh, and we have a regular crowd of people every every week, it seems. And we're always asking are always asking uh, for questions. And of course, we're uh, discussing current events. And uh, uh, usually, there's a lot of conversation usually about surveys. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lori Rodericks, uh, my colleague uh, over at Amateur Healthcare Strategies, and I often talk about recent survey experiences that we have as we're doing surveys or mock surveys. 
If you're interested in joining us for those weekly drop-in sessions, uh, go over to asc-central.com and sign up for our patron program. We do have an upcoming boot camp. Um, the only one that's been announced so far is the business office manager's boot camp, which is going to be in March. And again, for more information about that, uh, make sure you go to asc-central.com. So we've been doing a lot of surveys lately, haven't we? It mm-hmm. seems like a lot of our centers are... Uh, either in the survey window or have upcoming uh, announced surveys. So it's been keeping me busy. I'll be heading out to New York City uh, tomorrow morning to uh, get ready for a survey. And I just finished uh, a survey with the accreditation organization, mm-hmm. a very, very good survey. It was, it was a pleasure to, to meet with those uh, individuals. Of course, I can't say who they are, but you know who you yeah. are. <laughs> and I know you're regular listeners. So uh, thank you so much for a great experience. So let's talk about recent news. Go ahead, Sue. I just wanted to put in a reminder about long nails and hand hygiene. In nurse.org from February 8th, they cited some studies linking long fingernails to um, NICU babies' illness and uh, even some deaths. Artificial and natural nails longer than a quarter of an inch beyond the fingertip can harbor dangerous microbes such as uh, MRSA and other staph bacteria, which can be spread to the patient. And some of the studies, though, refer to outbreaks that happened um, quite a few years ago. And of course, we know NICU babies are much more sensitive to infection. But I've noticed recently that people aren't always paying attention to nail length or if there's artificial nails. They don't take it as seriously as they do, you know, just hand washing. So, and of course, everybody has known these rules, but I just thought it was a good reminder that it is a quite a potential source of infection. So when you're doing your hand hygiene education or in services, just kind of keep an eye out for that or even put it on your you know, checklist to kind of, you know, remind your staff. Yeah, and and I got to admit, uh, um, that's not something I'm always looking for, mm-hmm. even when I'm on a survey or a mock survey. So uh, yeah. thank you for reminding me and for all of those sure. centers that are about to go through a <laughs> survey with me, uh, make sure that you're also looking into that. And in the Times Union on February 14th, there was a follow-up on the story about the Florida nursing schools, which had sold fraudulent diplomas and transcripts to aspiring nurses. And we talked about this on on the podcast earlier, I think a couple of times. So last year, New York asked about 900 of the nurses who had received their degrees at one of those schools to voluntarily give up their licenses. Many of the nurses refused to surrender their licenses, and 54 of the nurses who did surrender their licenses are now suing the state to get their licenses back. They say they attended classes and they have proof of their clinical hours, and they passed the NCLEX. Some of them graduated before the school was even accused of selling fake degrees. Now, of course, some of the nurses did admit to only attending um, a one-day review course or not attending any classes at all, but it seems like like it, it really would be more fair for the state to look at each case separately and weed out the ones who actually did. You know, some of these people didn't even know that it was a scam thing and they, and they you know, went through the normal classes and all of that. Um, and then, of course, there's ones who didn't, but they shouldn't really group them all together and just make sure the ones that did the work really should be able to keep their licenses. As long and, as they pass the NCLEX, which, which yeah, of course, they did in order to be did. able to, Yeah, you know. and I think... That's always my takeaway, not my only takeaway, but it's just shocking to me that someone could pass the NCLEX who didn't even have the education. Yeah. I mean, it's hard enough for people that have gone through the four years, two years of nursing. So I guess there's more to come on that, but I'm hoping it'll be sorted out in a fair way. And according to Becker's ASC review, um, they cited a report from the law for- firm Mintz. M-I-N-T-Z, there were some very large fines in the last year for violations of the Stark Law. 
These allegations included overpaying physicians based on what they earned in private practice and ignoring warnings about disconnects between high compensation and the productivity of the physician. And one company allegedly paid referring cardiologists $500 an hour to supervise PET scans, although they were with other patients at the time of the scan. So it appears they were being paid for the referral. Um, that's what they're alleging. These settlements were in the many millions of dollars. And due to the large dollar amounts, they had a comment in the article that that's probably something that the Justice Department is going to be enforcing even more strictly in the future. And I know so these seem pretty obvious, but I know, John, there are cases where it can seem pretty innocent, but yeah. you could still be accused of this. We, we talk about this uh, actually mm-hmm. quite a bit in the boot camps yep. uh, that uh, unfair or un, uh, uh, unreasonable uh, payments to like your medical director mm-hmm. or your director of uh, yeah. surgery um, are are the, are the focus of the Department of Justice investigations. Uh, so you'd be very careful to make sure that the uh, your medical director, any any of the uh, officers of the organization, physicians that are actually performing cases at the center. Um, are, are are filling out timesheets. You know, mm-hmm. if they're getting compensated, that the compensation yeah. is in line with the services that are being rendered. Yeah, uh, when I say timesheets, right? right so. they, they need to keep track of how much time they spend, uh, report that regularly to the organization, and then compare those hours to the compensation that they're receiving. Uh, so, uh, as you said, they can be very innocent, uh, and mm-hmm. you just have to make sure that they are market rate uh, compensation yeah. packages. And, and it doesn't have to always be money, right? Like you could, what if you offered somebody a vacation, whoever's the highest earning physician or something? Well, you just can't really do that. Right, right. It, uh, that's a very good example, too. You know, and, and even things like buying them lunches when you're not buying lunches for, for other providers. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, all of those things you have to look at very carefully. So if you're not familiar with that, I do encourage you to look into the anti-kickback statute. And lastly, the FDA has issued a Class one recall on MedFusion syringe pump model 4000 pumps that were distributed from November 16th, 2010 to July 28th, 2023. So it's a long span. The ASD Incorporated is recalling MedFusion Model 4000 syringe pumps due to issues associated with earlier software versions of the medical pump. Issues associated with earlier software versions of the medical pump may affect the alarm system, the pump, the control screen, and other parts of the pump. So if undetected issues are present in the device, there's the potential that the device may fail and result in a delay or an interruption of um, therapy, or the device may fail to deliver the therapy per the programmed setting. I think it is kind of unusual that uh, surgery centers do use pumps, but, uh, you know, those organizations, especially larger organizations, Mm -hmm. may have these. And this is a very common model, too, so uh, uh, it's definitely something to watch out for. Sue, when I was looking at the the CMS uh, updates, the uh, letters to the states, I saw an interesting update for hospitals and critical access hospitals related to physician orders and the use of texting. Now, this does not uh, relate to ASCs, but it did spark an interest in mine of looking into uh, the use of texting in an ambulatory surgery center. I I found an interesting sentence in the guidance that uh, CMS issued to the hospitals and critical access hospitals that stated the following, which I think applies really to not only hospitals and uh, 
and uh, critical access hospitals, but to uh, surgery centers too. And it states this, CMS expects that providers choosing to incorporate texting of patient information and orders into their EHR, electronic health record, will implement a platform that meets the requirements of the HIPAA security rule and the High Tech Act Amendment of 2012, as well as uh, the conditions of participation. So even though this particular guidance doesn't uh, relate directly to mm-hmm. surgery centers, they are referring to the HIPAA security rule in the High Tech Act, which do uh, remind people that they have to be very careful about unsecured communication mechanisms. The High Tech Act does remind healthcare providers to be very careful with patient health information, of course, and it's best not to share any PHI, individually identifiable PHI health information by text. If you do wish to text, use an encrypted system. The HIPAA website does provide some guidance regarding what they refer to as non-public facing communication products and states. A non-public facing remote communication product is one that, as a default, allows only in the end only the intended parties to participate in the communication. Non-public facing remote communication products would include, for example, platforms such as Apple FaceTime, Facebook Messenger, video chat, uh, Google Hangouts, video, WhatsApp, video chat, Zoom, or Skype. Such products also would include commonly used texting applications such as Signal, Jabber, Facebook Messenger, Google Hangouts, WhatsApp, or iMessage. Typically, these platforms employ end-to-end encryption, which allows only an individual and the person with whom the individual is communicating to see what is transmitted. And the platforms also support individual user accounts, logins, and passcodes to help limit access and verify, verify participants. So I think the big takeaway here is that if you have to text other healthcare professionals any PHI, be very careful and use encrypted products. Uh, using your uh, text messaging system in your cell phones is really not appropriate. I want to talk about some recent experiences. Advanced directives are, is one of those things we talked about in our last episode, but I want to remind you to uh, to make sure your receptionist or your pre-op nurse is asking about uh, asking the patient if they have any advanced directives, and if they do say yes, to get a copy for the records. So don't just uh, you know check off the box that says yes and and not include that that advanced directive or even a notation about the advanced directive or the the absence of the actual document, because that really leaves you open to some uh, legal liability. And then I also want to talk about credentialing of non-employee techs that come with contracted services. So services such as roll-on, roll-off, eye equipment vendors, and lithotripsy vendors that bring a tech to work with the machine during the actual procedure need to be credentialed. So Now, I'm going to put credentialed in quotes here because the process of credentialing those techs is not nearly as complex as it is with credentialing a physician or a CRNA, but they still need to be credentialed. So what you're going to want to do with those texts is you get an application, a short-form application, uh, identify a delineation of privileges for them, which would be very short, of course, just what they're performing during the procedure, doing primary source verification of any licenses or certifications that they might have, uh, and then grant privileges by the governing body and document this in a, in a credential file. Now, again, this doesn't need to be as complex as uh, credentialing for a physician or a CRNA, but it, you do have to do this, and, and we are getting citations for this when they're not being done. And by the way, don't believe the vendors when they say, oh, I don't have to do it for anybody else. They clearly have to do it uh, in organ- other organizations, and, and you'll find very quickly that they already have a packet that they'll provide to you with this information. The problem, of course, comes when you are uh, trying to do this 
quickly. Like maybe you find out that that individual that's coming the next day uh, has never worked there before, and you have to quickly credential them. Again, you could uh, set it up so that you can grant them temporary privileges if necessary. So recently, I've uh, become concerned about informed consents. I've, I've seen recent issues uh, where ASCs are getting signatures on the surgical or the anesthesia consents at the registration desk, or they're asking the nurses to get the signature from the patient before the doctor or the anesthesiologist even sees that patient. Now, it is all right for the receptionist to get the consent to treatment form signed at the front desk. Now, the consent to treatment allows the ASC staff to treat the patient, but the receptionist is not the appropriate individual to get the signature on the procedural or surgical consent or the anesthesia consent. Therefore, we thought we would uh, talk about this in our focus segment. So let's take a short break, and when we come back, we'll talk about informed consent. With the rapid changes occurring in the ASC industry, the exodus of experienced ASC administrators, nurse managers, and business office managers, there is an increasing demand for quality leadership education. That's where our industry-leading boot camps come in. In 2021, we introduced our administrator boot camp and the director of nursing boot camp, and in 2023, the business office manager boot camp. These boot camps have become the industry standard for ASC leadership training, and with over 225 graduates, lead the industry in mentored virtual training. Live virtual training for the administrator boot camp occurs every January and July, and the director of nursing boot camp is October and May. Our new business office manager boot camp will continue in the spring of 2024. There are also on-demand versions of each boot camp for those who simply can't attend the live virtual programs. All boot camps, including the on-demand boot camps, include access to resources, membership in the ASC Central Patron Program, copies of John's latest books, access to credentialing, conditions for coverage, and other recorded training programs, and of course, our regular drop-in Zoom sessions where you can ask questions and interact with other patron and boot camp members. Our programs also include AEU credits for those that are CASC certified. Our programs are comprehensive and taught by the nation's leading ASC experts and are designed for all levels of leadership, from experienced leaders who want to enhance their skills or pass the CASC exam, or those who are new to the industry and wish to learn how to run an ASC. For more information about our live, virtual, and on-demand programs, visit ASC Central at asc-central.com. Or you can call us at 585-594-1167 or email us at info at ASCPodcast.com for more information. So as we mentioned in our first segment, we're going to talk about informed consent. When we're talking about informed consent, we're talking about the surgical consent or the procedural consent and the anesthesia consent. And as we noted, there are some ongoing issues with this. And uh, I, I, I'm still surprised even today that, that uh, surgery centers are allowing um, these consents to be signed before the physician or the anesthesiologist even has that conversation or allowing the receptionist to get this consent, which is totally inappropriate. So as we always do when we're talking about these things, let's go right back to the regulations and the interpretive guidelines in the conditions for coverage. So, Sue, why don't you give us the uh, uh, the regulations? Section 416.50C on advanced directives. 
The ASC must comply with the following requirements. Provide the patient or, as appropriate, the patient's representative with written information concerning its policies on advanced directives, including a description of applicable state health and safety laws, and, if requested, official state advanced directive forms. They must inform the patient or, as appropriate, their representative of the patient's rights to make informed decisions regarding the patient's care, and they must document in a prominent part of the patient's current medical record whether or not the individual has executed an advanced directive. And continuing on in 416.50E, the standard for exercise of rights and respect for property and person, it states the following, the patient has the right to the following, to be fully informed about a treatment or procedure and the expected outcome before it is performed. So uh, before we go on to 41650E, I did want to remind you that, again, the regulations specifically state that you have to ask the patient about whether they have any advanced directives and document the results of that in the medical record. Then moving on to 41650E. The interpretive guideline states the following. As in the case of advanced directives, the patient has the right to make an informed decision regarding his or her care in the ASC. The right to make informed decisions means that the patient or the patient's representative or surrogate is given the information needed in order to make informed decisions regarding his or her care. And the right to make informed decisions regarding care presumes that the patient has been provided information about his or her health status, diagnosis, and prognosis. And parenthetically, um, it's not appropriate for that conversation to occur with the surgeon on the date of surgery. Usually that conversation occurs in the physician's office uh, prior to the procedure. And sometimes they sign off on the surgical or procedural consent at that time, which is, is far better than having them signed off on the day of the surgery. Continuing with the interpretive guidelines, it continues to state, furthermore, it includes the patient's participation in the development of their plan of care, including providing consent to or refusal of medical and surgical interventions, and in planning for care after discharge from the ASC. The patient or the patient's representative or surrogate should receive adequate information provided in a manner that the patient or the patient's representative or surrogate can understand to assure that the patient can effectively exercise the right to make informed decisions. And this uh, reminds me, too, that uh, we have to make sure that the if the physician and the patient do not speak the same uh, language, that an interpreter needs to be involved. And that interpreter probably should be uh, having a one-on-one -on -one conversation between the patient and the, and the physician. The interpreter should be uh, um, interpreting uh, the conversation with the physician uh, about the risks and rewards of the procedure. So again, and, and it also reminds us how important it is that um, that interpreter be able to speak medical terminology, mm -hmm. which family members often cannot do. So again, reminding you that you should be uh, hiring a, a, an interpreter uh, whenever the uh, patient and the uh, provider don't speak the same language. Continuing with the interpreted guidelines, ASC must utilize an informed consent process that assures patients or the representatives or surrogates are given the information and disclosures needed to make an informed decision about whether to consent to a surgical procedure in the ASC. The primary purpose of the informed consent process in the ASC is to ensure that the patient or the patient's representative or surrogate is provided information necessary to enable him or her to evaluate the proposed surgery before agreeing to that surgery. And I, I guess parents before the actual date of surgery. Mm -hmm. Typically, this information would include potential short and longer-term risks and benefits to the patient of the proposed intervention, including the likelihood of each, based on the available clinical evidence as informed by the responsible physician's professional judgment. 
Informed consent must be obtained and the informed consent form must be signed by the patient or as appropriate the patient's representative and placed in the patient's medical record prior to the surgery. It would be acceptable if the ASC required the physicians who perform procedures in the ASC to obtain that patient's informed consent outside of the ASC prior to the day of surgery. And that is, of course, quite common. Since this might allow more time for discussion between the patient and the physician than would be feasible on the date of surgery. Continuing with the uh, interpretive guidelines. In such cases, the physician must follow the ASC's informed consent process, and in all cases, the ASC must ensure that the patient's informed consent is secured prior to the start of the surgical procedure and that this consent is documented in the patient's medical records. Given that the ASC's surgical procedures generally entail use of some form of anesthesia and that those there are risks as well as benefits associated with the use of anesthesia, ASC should ensure that their informed consent process provides the patient with information on anesthesia risks and benefits, as well as the risks and benefits of the surgical procedures. The ASC surgical informed policy, consent policy, should describe the following. Who may obtain the patient's informed consent? The circumstances when a patient's representative rather than the patient may give informed consent for surgery. The content of the informed consent form and instructions for completing it. The process used to obtain informed consent, including how informed consent is to be documented in the medical record. Mechanisms that ensure that the informed consent form is properly executed and is in the patient's medical record prior to the surgery, and if the informed consent process and informed consent form are obtained outside the ASC, how the properly executed informed consent form is incorporated into the patient's medical record prior to the surgery. If there are additional requirements under state law for informed consent, the ASC must comply with those requirements also. And the interpretive guidelines also provide an example of a well-defined informed consent process. A well-designed informed consent process would include discussion of the following elements, a description of the proposed surgery, including the anesthesia to be used, the indications for the proposed surgery, material risks and benefits for the patient related to the surgery and anesthesia, including the likelihood of each based on the available clinical evidence as informed by the responsible practitioner's clinical judgment. Material risks could include risks with a high degree of likelihood but a low degree of severity as well as those with a very low degree of likelihood but a high degree of severity. Treatment alternatives, including the attendant material risks and benefits, the probable consequences of declining recommended or alternative therapies, who will conduct the surgical intervention and administer the anesthesia, whether physicians other than the operating practitioner will be performing important tasks related to the surgery in accordance with the ASC's policies. Important surgical tasks include opening and closing, dissecting tissue, removing tissue, harvesting grafts, transplanting tissue, administering anesthesia, implanting devices, and placing invasive lines. Whether, as permitted by state law, qualified medical practitioners who are not physicians will perform important parts of the surgery or administer the anesthesia, and if so, the types of tasks each type of practitioner will carry out, and that such practitioners will be performing only tasks within their scope of practice for which they have been granted privileges by the ASC. So uh, the important thing here to note is that if uh, if a, uh, a PA or an advanced practice nurse or a CRNA is providing any services, they should be mentioned. They must be mentioned uh, in the consent. 
and especially as they mentioned, including opening and closing. You know, sometimes you see have PAs that are doing that process, so they're going to have to be mentioned uh, in the consent. And it is also important to note that the name of the provider, healthcare provider, needs to be mentioned in the consent. You can't just use a generic term like the name of the practice or the name of the uh, the anesthesia practice. So what are the issues that we have with regard to informed consent? Uh, so the, the biggest issue that I've been seeing lately is that the consent is not always being uh, signed properly. And I've seen this uh, many times, unfortunately, where, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the uh, the consent is being signed at the registration desk. That's totally un- unacceptable uh, because the registration clerk, you know, should not be the person getting mm-hmm. uh, the signature on that form. And then the other problem with that is sometimes the physician or the anesthesiologist has never even uh, had that conversation with the patient uh, prior to the signature being obtained. And I've seen this in the pre-op area where the nurse will go up to the patient and say, hey, you know, here's the consent forms. Can you? Can I get your consent, or can I get you your signature on these consent forms? And if the patient has not actually had the conversation with the surgeon, or the physician, or the anesthesiologist, or the CRNA prior to getting that signature, uh, then this is not a proper informed consent. So make sure that uh, that those forms are only signed after the uh, actual conversation occurs. I assume another thing that's popped up periodically is I'm finding that the anesthesiologists are actually not having a conversation about the risks and rewards of anesthesia. Um, mm-hmm. They often, you know, do their um, their history and physical uh, or their anesthesia assessment mm-hmm. and then uh, uh, neglect to actually have that conversation with the patient. Mm-hmm. So they need to make sure that that is done, again, prior to the patient signing that form. And then the issue also with the nurses getting the informed consent signature uh, comes down to the conversation. Uh, The nurse, for example, should not be saying, I want to get your consent for the procedure. They should be saying, I understand that you've had the conversation with the doctor or the uh, anesthesiologist or the CRNA. Are you comfortable signing this form which documents that consent? And, and that would be an appropriate way to get that, that, mm-hmm. that signature. Otherwise, you, sir, Sue, as a nurse, know uh, you put your license at risk mm-hmm. if you are leading a patient to the, the impression that you're actually uh, consenting or getting their consent. Yeah. And even giving them an opportunity to ask questions. They can't ask questions of, of you as a nurse. Right. But, but they can make express sure the f- that they don't have questions. If they do, you have to get the provider. Right, and and I've I've even seen uh, techs getting the signature, uh, or medical assistants getting the signature is totally inappropriate. Uh, and again, they don't even really, you know, their education and training don't usually include any conversation about what consent process mm-hmm. would include. So again, I think the big takeaway from this is be very careful with your uh, informed consent and that whole process. Um, you might want to take a look at, at, at how that's uh, progressing. Uh, you're going to find that uh, physicians are often uh, quite uh, upset when you uh, remind them that they have to uh, have a conversation with the patient prior to surgery uh, and that they're the ones that really should be getting the signature. And, and that really is the best process is for the signature to be obtained during or immediately after that conversation that the physician or the anesthesiologist or CRNA has. Let's take a short break, and when we come back, we'll talk about upcoming events. In this segment, we provide an update on upcoming topics for the podcast, 
our upcoming virtual conferences and upcoming speaking engagements for John and his staff and other events in the ASC industry. So the Georgia Society of ASCs and the South Carolina ASC Association's Joint Semiannual Conference and Trade Show is going to be this week, February 22nd to 23rd, 2024, in Atlanta, Georgia, at the Western Atlanta Perimeter North. And on August 15th through the 16th, 2024, they'll have another meeting in Hilton Head, South Carolina, at the Marriott Hilton Head Resort and Spa. And the Louisiana Ambulatory Surgery Center Association's annual meeting is February 23rd in Baton Rouge, Louisiana at the West Baton Rouge Conference Center. The Florida Society of Ambulatory Surgical Centers Quality and Risk Management Conference is April 4th through the 5th, 2024 in Daytona Beach, Florida at the Hilton Oceanfront Resort. And their annual conference and trade show is going to be July 17th through the 19th in Orlando, Florida at the Signia by Hilton Orlando Bonnet Creek. And ASCA 2024 will be at the Gaylord Palms Resort and Convention Center in Orlando, Florida on April 17th to the 20th, 2024. And Sue, I think you signed up. How many people from uh, Ambitory Healthcare Strategies? I don't know, probably around 10 or so. So we're going to be there in force. And if you're going to be at the conference, uh, do uh, um, you know send us an email. Or uh, if you're a, a patron member, you know send us a text and we'll try to meet up with you. The Arizona Ambulatory Surgery Center Association Conference is April 27th through the 28th in Scottsdale, Arizona at the Weston Kierland Resort. The Gulf States Conference is June 11th through the 13th, 2024 in Biloxi, Mississippi at the Beau Rivage Resort and Casino. And the Becker Spine Orthopedic and Pain Management Driven ASC Conference is June 19th through the 22nd in Chicago at the Swiss Hotel. Please support our, our friends over at Becker's. We get so much uh, good information from them, mm-hmm. and uh, we do quote quite a number of their uh, articles on this podcast, and, uh, and so definitely try to support that conference. The Texas Ambulatory Surgery Center Society's annual conference is July 24th, through the 26th in Galveston, Texas, at the San Luis Resort Spa and Conference Center. And we are going to try to have a booth at that conference this year. And the California Ambulatory Surgery Association Annual Conference is September 4th through the 6th in Anaheim, California, at the Anaheim Marriott. And we are going to try to have a, uh, a presence at that conference also, probably going to do a, a, a podcast from there. Tennessee Ambulatory Surgery Center Association's conference is September 12th through 13th. 2024 in Chattanooga, Tennessee at the Chattanooga. And Becker's ASC 30th Annual Meeting, the Business and Operations of ASCs, is October 30th through November 2nd in Chicago, Illinois at the Hyatt Regency. And our second ever Business Office Manager Boot Camp will be March 12th through the 15th, 2024, presented virtually. For more information, visit asc-central.com. And, of course, on-demand versions of the ASC Director of Nursing, the ASC Administrators, and the ASC Business Office Managers Boot Camps are available at asc-central.com. And we do want to remind everyone to become a patron member of the podcast. The patron member program, which is available on the ASC-Central website, is an exclusive membership website that provides a one-stop ASC regulatory and accreditation compliance operations and financial management resource to busy administrators, nurse managers, and business office managers. And resources include some of our virtual conferences, uh, links to information uh, pertinent for ASCs, copies of policies and procedures, various forms, and fire and disaster drills. And, of course, that weekly drop-in session, generally weekly drop-in session on Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. 
Eastern Standard Time. Membership helps to defray the costs of producing the podcast, including our research staff, travel costs to conferences, equipment costs, and production costs. And for more information, please visit asc-central.com. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey. If you found this episode informative, we encourage you to share it with your friends and colleagues in the ASC industry. And don't forget to hit that subscribe button so that you never miss an episode. We'd love to have any feedback about our episode or ideas for future episodes by sending us an email at comments at ASCpodcast.com. We'd like to give a special thank you to our great team here who make this podcast possible. Our sound editor, Susan Cronkite, our executive producer, John Gailey, and our dedicated research team, Sue Cronkite, Jenna Alvarez, Judy D'Ambrosio, Alex Borneman, Zach Kalaridis, Jim Masters, Amy Cronkite, Laurie Rodericks, Kathy Fodi, Donna Macchio, Christina Norman, Mike D'Ambrosio, and Katie Pearson. We couldn't do it without them. Our music is provided by Media Sushi and Mike Noah and... The ASC Podcast with John Gailey is hosted on Podbean and is available on all major podcast platforms. Thank you for listening. This episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey is sponsored by Surgical Information Systems, providing cutting-edge information solutions for surgery providers. Trivalence, offering a comprehensive and next-generation ASC solution that optimizes payment and supply chain performance, enabling actionable data insights. MedServe, which offers the only digital narcotic cabinet specifically designed and priced for surgery centers, helping standardize processes and compliance, eliminate paper logs and prevent drug diversion and Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies, which is the nation's leading regulatory and accreditation compliance resource for ambulatory surgery centers. For information about any of our sponsors, please visit our website at ASCPodcast.com. This podcast is an educational and operational tool and is not intended to be a comprehensive resource for all rules, regulations, and standards that an ambulatory surgery center must meet. The advice provided should not be considered as, nor does it constitute legal advice or opinion. When reviewing specific situations involving legal and regulatory issues, attorneys and other professionals should be consulted. This has been a production of Eden Group Development. All rights are reserved. If you're interested in advertising or sponsoring the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, please email us at info at ASCPodcast.com. And we'd love to hear your questions and comments. Please email us at comments at ASCPodcast.com.